In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So, God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Genesis. Uh, last time we looked at Genesis uh, chapters 36 and 37. And uh, chapter 36, we focused on the uh, genealogy of Esau. It was just uh, one of those chapters was a lot of names of the genealogy. And chapter 37 um, was our first introduction to the person of Joseph and how he as being the second youngest brother uh, of all the, the sons of Jacob. He, um, you know, he, his brothers were jealous of him. Jacob, his father was giving him special treatment. And Joseph saw some vision, some dreams that kind of foreshadowed and prophesied about how uh, at some point in the future, all of his brothers would bow down and kneel to him. His brothers hated him. They sold him into slavery. And that's kind of where we left it um, at that point. Uh, today, we're going to talk about, we're going to start with Genesis 38. Um, Genesis 38 is like a completely separate story from the story of Joseph. It's um, an incident that happened with Judah, Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. Uh, and then we'll talk about the next chapter in chapter 39, which we go back to the story of Joseph again. Okay. Um, so, 38 says it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw that there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chezib when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. <clears throat> so Judah here, he has a, a, he, he marries, he has a son. His son's name is Ur. Uh, and then when Ur, so this is over a long period of time, right? This, this chapter, right? It's like overlapping with other events that could be happening because it's speaking about Judah getting married, Judah having a son, his son growing up, his son getting married, okay? But it says here that Ur, who was Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. It doesn't explain what type of wickedness, what is it that Ur had done, but God did not allow him to live, okay? So it says here that the Lord killed him. He did not allow him to live. So what's going to happen now, okay, uh, that, that Ur is dead, okay? His family, uh, you know, no longer has an heir, right, for, Ju for Judah, okay? Um, so it says what? And Judah said to Onan, okay, remember, who is Onan? Onan is the second brother, right? So, so Ur was the firstborn. Okay, he died. Onan was the second. Okay, we read that in uh, verse four. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. <clears throat> so, because uh, Ur had died and she and he was married, um, his his wife she had no like she had no children. Um, there was nobody there to uh, to to inherit the estate of Ur, because there was no children from that marriage. So Judah, wanting to rectify this, okay, 
he speaks to his second son, whose name is Onan, and he essentially he says, go and have a child with your brother's wife, okay, or the one who had died, go to his wife and, and marry her and bring up a son for her, okay? And this was something that um, would be done in a situation like this, because the idea of, you know, having an inheritance was something very important and was always given to the male children, right? So Ur should have gotten an inheritance, but because he died, now his wife is with, has nothing. So if she were to have a son, then that inheritance would now be passed on to him, okay? So it says, and Judah said to Onan, go in your room, uh, in your brother's, uh, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. Okay, so what is this saying? Saying essentially, he refused to have intercourse with her, okay, because he didn't want, uh, he didn't want, Ur's wife to have a son. Why do you think that would be? Yeah, because then he would, like with Ur dead, now all the inheritance goes to him, right? So if Ur now has a son, which is actually his son, right? Onan's son would become, technically, it would be considered that his son would be the son of Ur, right? Even though Ur is dead. So Onan didn't want to do this, okay? Onan didn't want to do this. Oops. Okay. And then it says, and the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain, uh, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Sheila is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Okay, so the thing that Onan did, right, because it was a very selfish act, and instead of doing something that would be uh, like merciful to Tamar, okay, the wife of Ur, Instead, he did this very selfish thing, and so the, the God was very angry, and so he allowed him to die as well. Okay, so now you have the situation where both of the sons of Judah, okay, Ur and Onan, are both dead. Okay, and Ur has a widow, Tamar. And so Judah is like saying to Tamar, you know, um, like I don't I don't have any more sons, you know, that you can marry. Uh, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Sheila is grown. This other son who is much younger, right? He's telling her, you know, in order for you to really remain a part of the family, in order for you to have some part in the inheritance, then you have to marry my third son. Now, my third son, he is too young right now to marry. So essentially, you have to live as a widow remaining in uh, your father's house. And she would go back to her father's house until he is grown. And then uh, after he is grown, then you can marry him. Uh, and, and this is in Judah's mind, this is the solution, okay? Because he's not, the third son is not old enough yet to marry. <clears throat> now, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted 
and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father in law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So essentially, time passes, other things happen. Uh, Judah's wife passes away, he moves and goes somewhere else. And essentially, Tamar is forgotten, right? Tamar is living in her father's house in an expectation that at some point in the future she would marry Judah's third son, okay? And it never happens. And Judah never calls for her. Judah never tells her, okay, now it's time. He just kind of continues about his life and Tamar is left alone, okay? So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given to him as wife. Right? Sheila was now of marrying age, the third son, the one who Judah had promised her, right? But he didn't ever kind of, you know, he never moved forward with this plan. So what did she do? She took off her clothes, her widow's clothes, right? Because, you know, women, whenever they would be widows, they would dress a certain way, like to express their mourning and sadness, okay? So she, she took off those clothes and she instead, she put on like different clothes and she wrapped herself in a veil. Why would she wrap herself with a veil? What do you think? What is a veil? Right, so she's hiding her identity. Good, right? So she's hiding her identity and she's sitting in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. Now, what is Timnah? Who is going to Timnah? Judah. So, so she is kind of sitting out in the street uh, along the road that was going to the place that Judah was going to, okay? And she was hiding who she was. And she changed her clothes so she wouldn't be recognized. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? Like to have intercourse with her. And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Okay, so what's happened here? She tricked him, right? So she asked for what? Like she, she said, if you're going to come into me, then you have to give me something. All right. And so what was the thing that he promised her? The goat. Okay. But he didn't have the goat with him. So she asked for a pledge. Like, give me something as a collateral. Give me something that I will have. It will keep with me until you come back and you bring me the goat that you promised. Okay. And so what did she ask for? Signet, cord, and staff that is in your hand. So why did she ask for those things? What are those things and why did she ask for them? What is a signet? 
So a signet, if you've heard of like a signet ring, okay, it's kind of like a ring that has a unique pattern or symbol on it that is unique to the person, right? Like uh, kind of how we have a seal. Like we have like this little embossing machine that whenever I assign like an, an important document and I want to show that this indeed is my signature and it's not forged, I emboss the paper with this pattern. And that pattern is something unique to the church, our church. So it would be even more difficult to uh, forge the signature because you'd have to forge the signature and you would have to forge this seal, right? Or you see seals in the government, like the US government has a seal, the Egyptian government has a seal and they're all uniquely, like look unique. And, and, you know, and it's illegal to use this symbol, anyone else to use this symbol because this is like a signature. Right? That's why it's called the signet, coming like from the word signature. So these items that she asked from him were unique items that um, were identifying him. Right? So anyone who looked at these items, they would be able to know that this is for this is Judas. Okay. And now Tamar, his daughter-in-law, is the one who has these things. Okay. Supposed to be temporarily until she receives the goat that Judah had promised her. <clears throat> so she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put her the garments of her widowhood and Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend Adulamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand but he did not find her okay so she went back essentially to her life she put her original clothes back on she went back to her life okay but now she is pregnant okay she is pregnant with a baby whose father is judah okay so we're going to see now what her plan is you know i mean her plan was she wanted to be pregnant but um but she she was even more clever than that okay Then he asked the men of the place saying, where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? So he, Judah is trying to find her because he wants his signet and his cord and his staff. He wants those things back again, right? Because those are very important, unique items. He should never have given them to her to begin with because she can essentially impersonate him, okay, with those things. So, so he's trying to find her. He's trying to give her the goat, okay? And they said, there was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. Okay, so he was fooled. Then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Okay, so even though judah had like kind of abandoned tamar and she was living uh, as a widow in her father's house but she was technically still part of the family of judah and judah had promised her that at some point his third son would be her husband even though he didn't do anything he didn't take any action okay so uh, tamar knew so she wanted she wanted a child when she she wanted she wanted the inheritance she wanted the child for her but at the same time she knew that if she 
you know, she wasn't free to pursue another relationship. Like she wasn't free to become another man's wife. She was stuck in the situation where there was nothing that she could do unless Judah permitted it. <clears throat> so by now being pregnant, she knew that she was going to be condemned for what she did because this would be considered an act of, of like unfaithfulness. So her now having the signet, right, of Judah is going to get her out of the situation. Okay, so Judah here is calling for her to be burned. When she was brought out, she went to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these things belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. And of course, she's being very you know, devious here because she knows very well who they belong to. They belong to him, right? And so she's showing him this, you know, without, you know, without, without declaring openly and accusing him. Essentially, she's saying, look, I have these things. These are the things uh, that prove who is the father. Okay. So Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Sheila, my son, and he never knew her again. Okay. So here, this deception um, uh, and, and the way that she went about proving who was the son. And, and, and so Judah was rebuked and, and said, you know, she is more righteous than I. Like, I'm the one who was wrong for not having given her my son, as I promised. And she was living as a widow for all these years. And I promised her this, and I never did it, right? So it's not like he's saying that what she did was right, but she, he's acknowledging that he himself played a role in this problem, okay? Tamar actually is the mother. So remember, Christ came from the tribe of Judah, right? And, and it is, Tamar is actually in the lineage of Christ from this, this situation that happened, right? Judah and Tamar's son is going to be one in the ancestry of Christ. Okay, so this is like a big deal. What's their son? Uh, son's name, is it, uh, I can't remember now, Z Zero. Is it Zero? Per per uh, Perez. She had she had two sons, but I can't remember now which one was the one that was the ancestor. Um, yeah, she, because she had two sons. So um, we read actually actually we can read it. It's, it's mentioned in, in Matthew uh, chapter one. Yeah, Perez. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. So, so Perez was the one who was in the genealogy of Christ. Okay. So kind of a, an interesting thing to learn from this, and we see this in many cases, you know, it's like when you think about Christ and you think about like his purity, like you can imagine that the people that he would choose to be his ancestors, because, you know, like we, we always say that we can't choose our parents, we can't choose our family, we can't choose our ancestors, we are just kind of stuck with who we are, right? Um, but God could choose, like he could choose his, his lineage, right? He could choose whoever it is that he wanted to come from. And we see that a lot of the people in the lineage of Christ were sinners, were harlots. There's another harlot, actually, right? Rahab, who was another harlot. 
we see people who are not royal or noble and definitely not saints um and and then god uses all of them like for the work of salvation and so we often like look at people like if we were to look at this situation like with tomorrow we, we look at it and be like this is this is horrible you know this is horrible that you would do something like this and of course it's unlawful that she has this relationship with her father-in-law actually this relationship was explicitly uh uh, rejected in the in the in the law of Moses. So right here we're before the law of Moses. There was no yet specific laws given against uh, like sexual relationship with relatives. Okay, but it was to come later on. But the way she deceived him and all this that happened, and yet like God still uses us even when we are, you know, we we make mistakes, we do wrong things. Um, if you if you look at um, you know, even the way that Judah responded, like Judah responded immediately, acknowledging his sin, acknowledging what he had done, saying she is more righteous than I, kind of reminds us of King David, who, you know, when Nathan the prophet rebuked him, he like immediately realized that, you know, he was a sinner, right? And so when we look at ourselves with a certain kind of self-perspective, self-reflection, it helps us to, like, it helps us to be, um, like, like it helps us to move forward spiritually, right? Because it's not so much about the mistakes and the flaws and the errors. It's the way that we respond to them, right? It's the way that that, that we repent of them, that, that God will then look over them and that God will, will, will not like hold us accountable for them. God will forget our sins because we have brought them to him. So here Judah is acknowledging, um, you know, this is, the, this is the couple, Judah and Tamar, who are both the ancestors of Christ. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. All right, so there was twins. One of them put his hand out and in order to kind of differentiate who was the firstborn, uh, the, the midwife put this scarlet thread um, around his hand. The midwife is a person who like delivers the baby, kind of like a nurse, okay? Then it happened as he drew back his hand and that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zero, okay? So Zero was the one who put out his hand and had the scarlet thread put on it. But then Perez ended up coming completely out first before Zero did, okay? And actually some of the church fathers, they see like uh, like symbolism in this, okay? So they see that Zira, Zira is the one who put his hand out first. They see that Zira represents the Jews, okay? Because they were supposed to be the firstborn. They were supposed to be the people of God. They were the ones whom God had chosen, right? To be his people initially. So it's like, they start the process. They're starting to like they are his people, right? But then um, the, the and they say that like um, putting out the hand represents receiving the law. Like they received the law of God, right? In the Old Testament, the law of Moses. 
Um, and the, their focus was on the sacrifice, right? They were always offering sacrifices. And so the, the, the red scarlet thread represents like the blood of the sacrifice. So it's like they started this, you know, they, they were initially the people of God. They received the law. They were offering sacrifices. They were doing this. And yet, because of their unbelief when the Messiah came, they were rejected from being the firstborn. So at that point, Zira, uh, who, uh, or uh, Paris, who represents the Gentiles, uh, he's the one actually who came out first, okay? Uh, because then he became the one who has the birthright um, instead of Zira, the one, the one who represented the Jews, right? So Zira represents the Jews, Paris represents the Gentiles. Uh, the Jews come out first to begin to receive the law of God, to offer sacrifices. But then because they rejected Christ, Perez, who represents the Gentiles, is actually the one who came out and he became like the people of God who is the church now. Okay, that's the way that the, the church fathers understand like the symbolism of this event. Okay. So that's the end of this story uh, about, uh, about uh, Judah and Tamar. Now we're going to continue in chapter 39, which is uh, going back to Joseph and what happened to him. The last time we, we saw Joseph, he had been thrown into the well, uh, and then his brother sold him to the Ishmaelites, uh, who then sold him as a slave in Egypt. Okay, so it says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. One thing we see about Joseph, Joseph is a, is a very messianic character because we see in him a lot of the character of the Messiah. We see in him um, the way that God uses him for the salvation of the world. We see in him the suffering that he had to endure before that salvation had been achieved. Okay, And we see Joseph all throughout this period of time that he's about to endure, which is about 14 years, we never see him cursing God. We never see him doubting God. We never see him in any way doing, you know, really anything other than, you know, like, like trying to live righteously, right? Um, he was not arrogant. You know, he, he did not look down at the Egyptians. He did not curse the Egyptians. Um, you know, he accepted humbly everything that happened to him. And we'll see that over and over in the story of Joseph, like how he is such a, a great like example to all of us, okay? The Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. This verse really is like the kind of the, the, the main verse, the main idea that we can think about when it comes to the person of Joseph in the Bible. The Lord was with Joseph and he made him a successful man. In every way he was successful. In every way, God was with him. God was with him when his brothers betrayed him. God was with him when he was in Potiphar's house. God was with him when he was falsely accused. God was with him when he was in the prison. God was with him when uh, Pharaoh had a dream that only Joseph could interpret. Uh, God was with him when he planned out how to save the people from the famine. In every way, God was with Joseph all throughout the story of Joseph, something we can definitely see. Also, we can kind of relate this to ourselves and say that as believers, God is with us. You know, sometimes we, we, we forget that God is with us and in the midst of adversity that God is with us. We look at the story of Joseph, we remind ourselves that even though this story and life goes, takes many, many years and we have many adversities, but 
if you look at the bigger picture, like apart from all of the small details, if you look at the bigger picture, you see how God works from era to era and season to season, protecting us, guiding us, and leading us in the direction that he wants us to go. Um, he especially works in us when, or we, we especially um, identify him working when we have nothing that we can do. You know, like we're always called to, to do our best, to work our best, you know, like uh, we're called to study. Uh, and then when we take the test, we do well, we say, well, God helped me with the test. Yes, he did. And he, I also studied, right? Um, any, any, anything that we do in life, like we are called to, to work our hardest and God will bless our work, right? But there are situations where there is nothing that we can do, right? Like here, Joseph was put in situations repeatedly where there was nothing that he could do. He didn't have any way to get out of slavery. He didn't have any way to gain favor with people. Like he, he didn't have, like he was thrown into the situation that was like completely beyond his control, okay? And in situations like this, we see the work of God even more clearly because we see that it cannot be the work of man, but only the work of God. Like, like when, the, when the Israelites are at the shore of the Red Sea, in this moment, there is nothing that they can do. There is no recourse. There is no weapons they can wield. There is no tactic they can deploy. There is, there is nothing. And they're certainly going to die, right? But in that moment, when God parts the Red Sea and they cross, it is completely evident and clear to them that God is the one who is saving them, but they are not saving themselves in any way. There is nothing that they can do. To get to those points are, you know, the, the times of greatest adversity in life, right? The greatest adversity is the times where we feel there's absolutely nothing that I can change. There's nothing I can work on, right? And in those times when we place our trust in God, those are the times where we see God working the most clearly. Those are the times where our faith can be strengthened the most because we see the evidence of God's work and God's plan that's not clouded by our own work. Right? What do I mean by that? I mean, God wants us to work, right? But sometimes we attribute success to ourselves because of the work that we've done and we forget about or we don't notice or we don't realize the work of God all throughout without which we could not have succeeded. So in the moments where there is no work at all that we can do, a problem too big for us to tackle, that there is just absolutely nothing other than to just pray and ask God to intervene, those are the times where God, God's work is the most evident. And we see this here in the life of Joseph, okay? <clears throat> Also, we see when it says the Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man. He was successful in a way that not only blessed himself, right? Like it didn't say he was successful and because he was successful, he became a very wealthy man and he received all of the desires of his heart and God made him to prosper and everything that was good for him. God did a lot of good for him personally, yes. But the main good is what was done through him for the salvation of the whole world, right? God made him successful for the benefit of everyone, not just his own benefit, okay? He would have to endure a lot, but in the end, God was protecting him and making him successful through it all.
So it says, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. Okay? Even those people who were not worshipers of God identified that there was something different about him. And this isn't the only place. Like, for instance, uh, if we go back to Laban, Laban, remember, is um, Jacob's uncle. Laban was not a worshiper of God, but he identified that when Jacob was with him, God made him a blessing to him. Like everything was working well. Everything was working smoothly. He prospered. He gained. He gained wealth. He gained sheep, right? And so on. Laban identified that God blessed him because of Jacob, right? Also, Pharaoh is going to see, and Potiphar here sees, that God is blessing, or even if they don't attribute it to God, but they are being blessed because of the presence of Joseph, right? This was had to do with him being successful. His success was not only his personal success, but his success is one that um, brings success to everyone. And this is true, like for us as Christians, we are receiving blessing from God, um, not only for ourselves, but we are wanting to be a blessing. Like we want to be a blessing and God will use us to be a blessing. And this is a way of evangelism. You know, like if I just go to my work on time, and I work hard and I do my best and I do everything that I should be doing and God grants me success and it brings blessing and success to the company that I work for, this communicates something. Like this communicates to the people around me that there's something unique and special about me, about the way that I'm living my life and that God is blessing me and blessing them through me, okay? So this is very uh, important for us to keep in mind. We are evangelizing by being faithful in our work. We are evangelizing by being faithful in what we are called for. And this is exactly what was happening here. Potiphar was asking Joseph to do a bunch of secular tasks around his house, right? But, but because of, you know, Joseph's uh, faithfulness, because of the, the success that God gave to Joseph, it says his master saw that the Lord was with him. Right. He didn't see that the Lord was with him because, you know, he prayed a lot or because he fasted or because he did those things. He saw that the Lord was with him because of the outcome of his work, because of who he was and what he did and the outcome of his work. <clears throat> so Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So Potiphar respected Joseph so much that he like gave him to manage his entire household, his finances, his possessions, his servants, his house, everything. He, he didn't even have to feel like he had to go and supervise, oversee, uh, double check, make sure that Joseph's doing a good job. He just trusted Joseph so much. Like this was like a servant who just did everything right and so I can just leave everything in his, you know, in his hands. And those people who are the most faithful and the most honest, they will receive honor and they receive high positions, even from those people who deny God. Deny God. You know, like 
in Egypt, for instance, um, a lot of the high-ranking positions, whether it be in the government or in the private sector or so on, are not given to Christians because of persecution, right? Um, but when it comes to certain positions, like any position where you have to be very faithful with money, like someone who is a treasurer or an accountant or something like that, you'll find that there are many, many positions in, in Egypt that are accountants that are held by cops. Because people recognize that for the most part, cops are honest with money, right? And that they can give that responsibility to them. So, so we, like as Christians, should have a reputation of being honest, of being faithful, of being sincere, of being truthful, you know, of, of like all these things. So that people would look at us and they would feel comfortable to say, I will give you uh, access to all that I have so you can manage it because I trust that you're doing the right thing with it. You're honest with it. And God is with you and God has granted you success in all that you do, right? This is, again, a form of evangelism. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So here, the, the wife of Potiphar, she's attracted to Joseph, okay? And actually, when you look at a situation like this, um, Joseph had many reasons why he could accept this request. Like there were many like, human reasons why such a request would be very attractive to him, okay? First of all, he is a young man, okay? And young men who are of this age, are going to be very easily inflamed with sexual desire and passion. And when you have this woman who is in a position of power, you know, who is like offering herself to him, this could have been very attractive to him, right? That's the one reason he might have accepted. The second is he's under a lot of stress. You know, like uh, he's feeling like he's a slave. He's living in a foreign land. He no longer is seeing his father, his brothers. You know, he doesn't know what his future is going to look like. He's living under a lot of stress, even though he's being treated well by Potiphar, but he's still a slave. Um, also, he has no prospect for marriage, right? He has no opportunity to live a life. He has no opportunity to be a father. He has no opportunity to have a wife of his own. He has no opportunity for any of those things, which, you know, maybe all growing up, that was his expectation. So at some point in his life that would happen, well, it's not looking like it right now for him. It's not looking like it, okay? Um, another reason why he could have convinced himself that it's okay to accept this is that refusing her would have had consequences, okay? Refusing her might get him in trouble, which it does, right? You don't want to say no to a, a powerful person. And here Potiphar's wife was a very powerful person, and she was trusted by Potiphar, and she could lie, do anything, you know, against him. So for her, for him to make her feel like to, 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 to reject her advances, um, again, this takes a lot of courage and bravery. Finally, another reason he could have accepted this is that um, a relationship with her could have helped him to advance. 
that have helped him to maybe open doors for him to, you know, give him more opportunities for him to eventually get out of the situation that he's in and to go to something else. So there could have been a lot of reasons why someone in Joseph's position would have made a concession. And even though they believed that maybe this was the wrong thing to do, but they could have convinced themselves like in his very unique and difficult situation, maybe there's some good in this. Maybe, maybe even God is opening this door for me to allow me to, uh, you know, like, like to get out of the situation somehow. But he was both loyal to his master, who was his slave master, Potiphar. He was loyal to him, right? And he wanted his success, and he did not want to harm him, and he didn't want to betray his trust, right? And he saw that this was a sin against God, not just the master, not just Potiphar, but this was a sin against God. This is something that would not be pleasing to God, so he did not want to do it. Again, we see why God chose Joseph as the one to accomplish this mission, because he was to be remain faithful all throughout his life, despite all of the adversity that he faced. So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. So she didn't give up asking. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside, right? This wasn't a one-time request. This was something that had become now like a normal part of life that he is constantly being harassed by this woman. Okay, and maybe Joseph could have eventually caved into this request. You know, like uh, we, when we are tempted in some way, maybe sometimes we're able to hold off, uh, like falling into the temptation one time or two times or three times. But the more the temptation remains and the more the temptation continues to harass us, the easier it is for us to fall into it. Okay. But Joseph did not fall, even though he was living in the house of this woman, surely trying to avoid her as often as he could, right? But, but there are situations out of his control, okay? So we ask the question then is, why did he flee, right? Because this fleeing tells us something very important about him. And, and you know, why did he flee from her? In, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, it says, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. When we consider ourselves to be strong, this is when we allow ourselves to be in situations that maybe are too much for us, situations that are going to lead us to sin. And we allow these situations because we think that we can endure them without fail, without falling, okay? And because we don't know ourselves well, we fall, okay? Here, Joseph, he, he, he was so like wanting to maintain his purity that he fled completely, even leaving his clothes behind. Like that's how much he wanted to flee, okay? So Joseph did not have any choice but to run away. Like she was aggressive, she was grabbing his clothes, okay? He didn't consider that sinning was an option for him. He didn't want to give in to her advances but he was willing even to run out of the house without clothes just to escape this temptation. It tells us something about what sacrifice is someone willing to do to avoid sin. You know, it's very easy for us to uh, rationalize sin. 
we give all kinds of excuses to ourselves to sin. Uh, I'm saying I don't feel well. Um, I'm stressed out. I need to, you know, I was put in a situation. I didn't have an option. I didn't have a choice. We, we make all kinds of reasons why we do what we do. And Joseph could have had every reason, right? And we would have looked at him. And if Joseph had fallen in this situation, maybe we all looked at him and say, we can understand. Okay. But he didn't, right? He didn't. He fled the situation completely. He didn't rationalize it at all. At all okay. She was able to grab hold of his garment, right? But she wasn't able to grab hold of his soul. She wasn't able to grab hold of his mind. She wasn't able to grab hold of his heart. All she took from him was the exterior. All she took from him was, was the, the superficial. But she couldn't take from him who he was, right? And that's what the devil tries to do. The devil is trying to take away from us who we are. He's trying to take away our identity. He's trying to take away our, our soul. He's trying to take away our character, right? And that's the problem. It's not about a specific situation where we fall into sin. It, it's, it's bigger than that. It's who am I and what am I becoming, you know? What am I allowing myself to do? What is the lifestyle that I have chosen, right? This is what the devil wants to tempt us away from the path of God and to walk a different path. So the devil, he might be able to affect our body. He might be able to cause us suffering. He might be able to tempt us, but he cannot take away our salvation. He cannot affect who we are unless we choose by our own choice to go after him. This is what we learn here from this. Like we learned this also from the example of Job. The, the devil was able to harm Job in so many ways, right? But he couldn't touch who he really was. He couldn't touch his character. Then by the end of the story, not only was Job's character intact, but actually his faith, his understanding, his obedience was even greater than it was at the beginning of the story. Like he benefited from the adversity that he experienced. He did not, he was not destroyed by it. Okay. So there are some times where, and as we're going to see here in the life of Joseph, that even though here he made a right decision, his right decision had a lot of negative consequences, right? And this is sometimes why we avoid making certain decisions because we're afraid of the consequences. So right decisions can have negative consequences. Okay, like for give you an example. Someone is offered a very high paying job, but that high paying job requires that they work, you know, 80, 90, 100 hours a week or whatever it might be. They don't have time to go to church. They don't have to read. They don't have time to pray. They don't have time to do anything. They kind of completely disconnect from the church. They don't have time to raise their children. They don't have time to do anything. Like completely their life has become about work and that's all it's about, okay? Well, if I say no to this job, there's a negative consequence. I get less money, you know? It's a negative consequence. Maybe what's tempting me toward this job, what's making me want this job is the money, which is a good thing. But I have to ask myself, what do I give up, right, to get that? Reconciling with someone that hurts me opens me up for more potential pain in the future, right? Reconciliation is a good thing. Reconciliation is what Christ wants for all of us, right? But when I reconcile with a person, I'm now making myself open and vulnerable to being hurt again, because that's by definition, anytime we're in a relationship, there is the possibility of being hurt, okay? So even though reconciling is a good decision, but it might have difficult consequences that we have to live with, okay? And continue fighting with. That doesn't mean that it's the wrong decision. 
It just means that good decisions can have painful outcomes. Okay. Giving of my things to the poor means that I have less. Right? Like when we're called to tithe, why is tithing difficult? Because I have less. Stuff that I had for myself, that I could spend on myself, that I could do things on my own with. Now you're asking me to give up some of that. And now there's things that I could have done that I can't do. Right? I have less. So that's a difficult, that's a good decision. But that's a good decision with negative consequences. Okay, having a stronger prayer life. Who doesn't? We all say, I want to have a stronger prayer life. But to have a stronger prayer life means I have to dedicate time to prayer, which means I have less time for other things, which you could call that a negative consequence in the sense that I'm giving, I'm sacrificing something. But all of these are right decisions. We're not just losing something, but we're gaining something. We're gaining something much greater, right? Which is, which is that we are being obedient to God. We are following God. God will bless us in a way that is greater than the thing that we're giving up. Here, Joseph was giving up. He was giving up his garment. He was giving up maybe his position that he was going to have. And we're going to see that he's going to be thrown into prison because Potiphar's wife is going to lie about the situation. But what he is going to gain to the end of all of this is he's going to become someone who God uses to save the world from famine. Okay. And so it was, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought in to us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. So here we see this type of feeling that Potiphar's wife had for him, which she might have described it as love, which nowadays people use the word love to describe such a feeling that I would have towards someone. But it was not love by any means. It was love for herself. It was the lust that is the love of herself, of wanting to satisfy her own desire. And, and we see actually who she is, and we see actually what she really believes and what she really feels when she was rejected by him, that she is not loving him or wanting to treat him with respect or goodness in any way. But now she is seeking to destroy him because he is the one who denied her her desire that would satisfy her. Okay? In fact, actually, Joseph who is the one who rejected her, is the one who is showing her true love because he is loving her by keeping her from falling into uh, having an affair, uh, you know, sitting against her husband, right? He is the one who protected her from this. So we show love to others when we tell them the truth, right? Even if they reject us, even if they don't accept what we're saying, even if they're offended by what we're saying, we show love to others when we tell them the truth. So we should not shy away from being truthful. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to be kind or polite or tactful, but we should be truthful. And if we are put in a situation like Joseph was put in here, where he is being pressured against his will to sin, then regardless of who I offend and who I upset and what happens to me, we should be able to stand faithfully and say, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to live this way. This is a great sin against God, just like Joseph said, how can I do this great sin against him? 
Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to mock me. So it happened, this is repeating again, huh? Or no? No, no. She spoke to him with these words saying, the Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to me and mocked me. So it happens as I lifted up my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words with which, uh, which his wife spoke to him saying, your servant did to me after this manner that his anger was aroused, okay? So even though Potiphar respected Joseph very much, and we see like from before, it said he didn't have to investigate anything. He just left everything into his hand. He didn't have to oversee him. He didn't have to do anything. He left everything completely to Joseph. The only thing he knew that he had was the bread that he ate, right? And yet when his wife comes and she makes this accusation, right? Uh, against him, his first immediate response is his anger was aroused. Okay. We are often presented with situations where somebody comes to us and tells us something about another person. This person did such and such to me. Okay. And if you hear this story, if you hear this explanation or this, you know, what, what happened, it sounds very credible and sounds very maybe infuriating even. Like, like makes us angry at the situation, makes us feel like this person is a victim in this, okay? Um, but then, if you were to hear the same story from the other person's perspective, you might get the same opinion about the other person, right? This is why, like, uh, conflict resolution between people, when there's been, like, a conflict between them is extremely difficult, because each person uh, has a different perspective on the situation. We should not do what Potiphar did. Remember, in every other way, Potiphar respects Joseph. Like Joseph does not have a bad reputation with Potiphar. Okay? And yet, when his wife came and he explained this, now of course she has influence on him because she is his wife. But, but he immediately changed. He, he, he left behind absolutely everything he knew about Joseph from his own personal experience to accept the outrageous claim that his wife was making. Okay? So it it's, would have been more wise for him to do is, of course, to take the matter seriously, to go talk to Joseph, to go see what, from his perspective what happened. Maybe to talk to the other guards, you know, to the other people that are around. Have you ever noticed anything going on with her? Like, what is, what's happening with her and him? Like, investigate and do some kind of investigation. Like, don't just take the first thing you hear and go with it and say, well, this must be the truth, right? Because finding the truth can be difficult. And very rarely do we find it simply by listening to one person, okay? And there's a lot of reasons for this, okay? What are some of the reasons why? We might get a lopsided, incorrect view of something by just listening to one person. Well, number one, that person could be lying, okay? Exactly like here in this situation. She's lying. She's not saying the truth. Sadly, like, you know, in a lot of situations, like maybe between married couples or things like that, sometimes people will lie. And just say something that's not true, okay? Or maybe what the person is saying is not a lie, but it's biased. They see the situation a certain way. They can't see it a different way. This is the way they see it. This is their perception of it, right? And because this is their perception of it, this is what they describe. This is what they explain. This is how they tell the story, right? Even though it's not really accurate. It's just that's what they see, okay? Another reason we shouldn't just listen to one person is maybe that person doesn't have the whole story. 
right? Maybe that person is telling you what they know, but usually when we tell a story and we don't have all the facts, what do we do? We fill in the facts with things that we think is the reasons why things were done, okay? And in our mind, maybe we believe that we have the whole story, but we really don't. We just pretend or imagine that we have the whole story and we're just kind of making up stuff, again, not lying, just thinking that this is really what happened. Another reason we should not just believe the first thing that we hear is that the person speaking to me might be very emotional, right? Even if we know something accurately, but I'm very, very emotional when I'm coming to describe it, I'm not going to describe it right. You know, if you've ever, you know, if you've ever heard someone who's very emotional describing something, it's very difficult to like understand, like what's the beginning of the story? What's the end of the story? What happened? Who said this? Who was that? Like, it's very complicated, confusing, right? But that same person, once they calm down a little bit, and then you ask them what happened, the story sounds completely different. And actually, even if we admit it to ourselves, like if you've ever been in a situation where something happens and you get really angry and you start fuming about this thing that's happened, and then after you calm down, you think about it again, you're like, you know what, that's not really as bad as I thought it was. Even though nothing's changed, the facts are the same, nothing, no, nobody has done anything differently. I myself perceive it differently when I am calm. Another reason why we shouldn't just take the story of one person alone is maybe that person is not communicating effectively. Like maybe they do know the story. Maybe they're not lying. Maybe they're not biased. Maybe they're not emotional, but they just don't know how to communicate. They don't know how to communicate in a way that other people understand. So they leave out important facts that are necessary to understand, not because they're trying to hide them, just because they're not communicating them well, right? Or they're, they're telling the story out of order. Right? Maybe they've forgotten things about the story that they don't remember. Okay. Um, or there could be people who are, you know, seeking to punish the other person, seeking to punish, seeking to, to make the other person appear evil. Right? Maybe what will happen sometimes is, well, the person is, you know, who has this, who is, who is trying to tell a story about something that another person did, they start to begin to bring in negative things that that person has done in the past that has nothing to do at all with the story, nothing to do at all with the situation, just trying to show that this is a bad person, you know, that this person is not worthy of trust, this person is should, you know, is not, is bad in some way, right? So, so there are a lot of reasons why that we should not take something at face value that we hear without getting other perspectives, okay? That's true for ourselves, like a parent, for instance, who has more than one child. The first child comes and says, oh, my brother or sister did such and such. Should we just immediately believe 100% of everything that was just said? Or we go get the other child and we say, well, what happened? Tell me what happened. Is this exactly what happened or something else? Also, when it's possible, Having both people together in the same place, if it's possible, it's not always possible, but if it's possible, it does help a lot. Because the moment that one person says something false for whatever reason, the other person jumps on it. And then you begin to see, okay, the truth is somewhere in between these two things, you know? And maybe with some explanation, one person begins to change their mind. So, so having this reconciliation process and this conflict resolution process is very important. And it's important that we not jump to conclusions based on our perception, based on what we hear, based on the first thing that we hear, just as what Potiphar did 
who essentially just rejected absolutely everything he knew about Joseph simply because of one accusation brought to him by his wife. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Okay. Um, so even though Joseph was thrown into prison, this was his punishment for what he did, and yet God was still with him in prison. Right? Like we see, keep saying God was with him, made him successful in everything, right? It doesn't matter whether he was with his family, it doesn't matter whether he was in the pit or as a as a slave in by with the Ishmaelites or in Potiphar's house or the prison or whatever. Regardless of his location, his circumstances, all those things can change, but God's presence with him never changed, and the purpose that God had for him never changed. Actually, each one of these events that was happening to him, even though from our perspective, it looked like it kept getting worse and worse and worse for Joseph, from God's perspective, he was actually getting closer and closer and closer to the end of this. He was getting closer to the final outcome that God wanted him to get to, okay? St. John Chrysostom, he says, So are God's ordainment, that things that seem to harm us are themselves that benefit us. That is what occurred in Joseph's case. His mistress intended to destroy him, yet while doing that, she placed him into security, right? She placed him into a place which is closer to the will of God for him, because now he was one step away from becoming ruler of Egypt, okay? And he had to go through these steps. So sometimes when we feel like the world is getting worse, well, maybe in, in, from our perspective, it's getting worse, okay? But from God's perspective, he's getting ready to reveal something. He's getting ready to do something different, something great that he had been preparing us for all along. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison, whatever they did there. It was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Can you imagine this? Like, like this is so remarkable. Like, imagine you have a prison as a warden. Now, warden decides that one particular prisoner is so good that he's going to make that prisoner responsible for the whole prison. You know? Like that's just not even reasonable to think about, right? But that's what happened. Whatever Joseph did, God made it to prosper. God was clearly with Joseph. And that's the way that God gave Joseph comfort. And everywhere, you don't see like God is audibly speaking to Joseph. You don't see like God is talking to him and saying, be patient, Joseph, everything's gonna turn out okay. But you see God working through his circumstances and we should feel God's presence the same. Like when we, Feel God is present with us, working with us, being faithful to us, you know, leading us out of dangerous situations or difficult trials. This should remind us always that God is with us. Okay. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Does anyone have any comments or questions before we uh, conclude? Okay. Let's pray.
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We ask you, O God, for your presence to be with us, just as you were with Joseph and all of the patriarchs. We ask, O God, that you lead us through this life and all adversities that are in it, all difficulties, all trials, and remembering you, O Lord, not giving in to sin, not giving in, O Lord, to the things that we think might alleviate our suffering, our stress, our anxiety, but instead waiting and trusting in you, O Lord, to fulfill us and to satisfy us and to bring us, O Lord, to your heavenly kingdom. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion of the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.